1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm speaking with Emily Legg, author of Stories of Our Living Ephemera Storytelling Methodologies in the Archives of the Cherokee National Seminaries, 1846 to 1907, published by Utah State University Press in December 2023. Stories of Our Living Ephemera recovers the history of the Cherokee National Seminaries from scattered archives and colonized research practices by critically weaving together pedagogy and archival artifacts with Cherokee traditional stories and indigenous worldviews. Emily Legg turns to the Cherokee Medicine Wheel and Cardinal Directions as a Cherokee rhetorical discipline of knowledge making in the archives, an embodied and material practice that steers knowledge through the four cardinal directions around all relations. By undoing the erasure of Cherokee literacy and educational practices, Stories of Our Living Ephemera celebrates the importance of storytelling, especially to those who are learning about about indigenous histories and rhetorics. Emily Legg is Associate Professor of Composition and Rhetoric at Miami University in Ohio. Emily, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks, and um, this is wonderful being here. I'm really excited, yay. (laughs) Excited for our conversation. Before we start talking about this book, I would really love if you could share a little bit with listeners about your background, where you grew up and went to school and what brought you to all of your research and teaching in composition and rhetoric.
0: Yeah, so I always like to start conversations um, by introducing myself in um, Cherokee, first of all. So I'll say, O-C-O, Emily Lake Dagwadoa, G-Jalagi. So hi, I'm Emily Lake, and um, I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. And while well, I grew up in Oklahoma, I'm speaking to you today from the traditional lands of the Miami and Shawnee people here in Oxford, Ohio. So I like to give an acknowledgement to them um, as stewards of this land and the work that they're continuing to do here in in language recovery um, with the Miami language and the Miami Center. But um, as I said, I grew up in a very small town in Oklahoma. So shout out to Okarchie, Oklahoma, which is central Oklahoma. We are known for incredibly awesome High school basketball teams, both the boys and the girls, and amazing fried chicken at our local bar called Aishan's Bar, which is if you know anything about Okarchi, it's basketball and fried chicken. So um it's a small farming community. And uh yeah, there was I always joke with people, we we sort of have this competition on how few students you have in your high school class. So I had 36. So, and and four of them were international students visiting for the year. So, so technically like, you know, it was even smaller. So, but I, yeah, I grew up in Oklahoma. Um, My family is traditionally from Northeast Oklahoma, which is now the Cherokee Nation Reservation um, in Veneta, in Bartlesville. For any listeners that are familiar with Oklahoma uh, landscape, it's it's sort of near Tulsa, which is one of the bigger, bigger cities. But I, I, Growing up, I knew that I was Cherokee. Um, I had that connection, but my parents divorced um, when I was quite young. And my Cherokee side of the family was my dad's side of the family. And they were in Bartlesville and all sorts of things. So I grew up going back to Bartlesville to hang out with my grandma, Grandma Leg. Um, I talk about her in my book. I, she really, I, I think she's the reason I became an academic, in, in part, because she would always just sit me down. She'd be like, well, Emmy... You know, I've been doing some genealogy. And that's like, that's how she kept herself busy was, was genealogy. And so she would just tell me all these stories of my family and my grandpa's side of the family. And it was through my grandpa's side. That's where the the Cherokee lineage is. Um, But in, I don't know if I want to call it like typical, you know, Cherokee story. A lot of it, I was... Somewhat separated from what would be like a traditional Cherokee upbringing. Um, I wasn't familiar with the stories, but my um, is my grandpa's mother died when he was eighteen months old, and he was kind of he he was raised until he was five by her side of the family, and then just through events, um, his dad remarried, and he was raised by his stepmom and him, and they were you know not Cherokee and lived in the area and he had connections and stuff but it wasn't there wasn't a typical like I, you know I wasn't learning he didn't learn the language he didn't learn the stories you know he always talked about being Cherokee but that was about the extent of it um he always read the Cherokee Phoenix which was the newspaper so um there was times so we get, we get copies of it as, as um, citizens and um, enrolled members and stuff. So he, he would always sort of bring it up. Um, so in a, in a way growing up, I sort of, I had this real big feeling of disconnection between being Cherokee and growing up in central Oklahoma and on a farm and, and all these things. So um, I went to school, I I went through a moment of rebellion, um, senior year in high school Everybody in my high school class was going to Oklahoma State University, Cowboys in Stillwater. And I was like, I wanna be different. I'm tired of being in the small town. Um, my parents both went, they met at OSU, um, Oklahoma State. And so like, I that was my, that was pr- my predetermined path. Um, and I don't know, something about like turning 17, 18. I was like, forget that. So I went to the University of Oklahoma which is a Norman. That was the big city school. And I quickly became a Sooner when my senior year, we won the national championship in football. So I was, I was there, I was outcast in the family and then convinced my sister and brother and cousins. And I, I started a bad trend. Um, apparently I'm to blame for that. But while I was there, I, um, Got into literature. I OU is a phenomenal place for Indigenous studies. Um, I had amazing Indigenous professors teaching Native American literature, and um, I decided for my foreign language, I would take Cherokee, and because OU offered it, and I was like, oh wait, wait, Cherokee has like it, this sounds ridiculous. Uh, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm like, oh, the Cherokee have, of course they would have their own language. Of course this would be taught. So so this was my first like moment of trying to weave back together how I identified with the work that I was doing in school. So I had the amazing privilege to learn Cherokee with Durbin Feeling, who was teaching at OU at the time. He Has since he's he's walked on, but um, if it tells you just how important he is, the Cherokee Nation has their language center is named the Durban language or Durban feeling, excuse me, Durban feeling language center. Um, He did so much revitalization work and he was just this amazing storyteller and elder. He had just this quiet presence. And um, it was just this amazing time Um, when I was an undergrad and I that made me very interested in linguistics so I wanted to go into linguistics let's be clear about this I was I was the linguist but um in I think we were joking about this earlier I'm so I'm a millennial and right as I was graduating that that lovely first recession hit and I was like well I don't know what to I want to do with my life so I had three years of just not like wandering taking like I think now we would call it gig work. It was a gig economy of substitute teaching and um, hearts for the oil industry for a while. It's it's a it's a I call it a dark time. It was fine, uh, but I just the whole time I was like I really want to go to grad school. I miss writing. I miss reading. I miss learning about things. And and so I I remember, and she's still my hero to this day. Um, Julia Earhart, who was a professor in the honors college at OU. And I went to her, this was three years after I had any class with her, I had graduated. I was like, Dr. Earhart, I don't know what to do with my life. And she was like, you're going to grad school. I was like, oh, okay, good, good. And, and she was like, you should do American studies. I'm like, oh, but I really like linguistics and language. And she, I remember she was like, I don't know about this, Emily, but I'll, I'll give people a call. So she like picked up the phone in her office. She called Susan Cates, who's a professor in composition rhetoric at OU. And I had had class with her and she's like, Susan, Emily wants to go to grad school. Where should she go? And so they both suggested Purdue university. And so that, that's how I ended up in rhetoric and composition. Um, I loved language. I loved the meaning, the way we make meaning of things. And because everything's all connected. I, so I I moved, I moved out to the Midwest, um, Lafayette, Indiana at Purdue. I'm in rhetoric and composition and first semester, um, and this was something I, I didn't necessarily feel like I could write about in my book because it was more of a story to tell. But uh, my dad had been diagnosed with cancer and it was it was one of the reasons why I didn't go to grad school right away. And I had stayed in Oklahoma. And um, so right after I moved to West Lafayette, I got a call in October and my dad had passed away and he had been very sick. And I had just felt like that I had this like, Connection with my dad, we kind of had, it um, wasn't a tough upbringing, but um, I, I just always joke, co-parenting wasn't a thing in the 90s. It was, you know, I lived with my mom and I saw my dad every other weekend and then we just kind of grew apart. Um, but in the past, like five years prior to that, I had gotten so close to my dad and I felt like, you know, i finally had him back in my life. And, you know, here I am in the Midwest and and he had passed and I was um, taking classes in uh, composition theory and the history of rhetoric. And, you know, I think it was through grief in a way. I just, I was like, I need to study who i am and i want to connect through my dad through my research. And so, you know, through this process of like grieving and trying to figure this out, like those old those old stories of me trying to figure out what does it mean to be Cherokee? I was now in grad school and i was like, okay, well I could study 19th century pedagogy. I know about the seminaries from growing up. I knew I had ancestors that went to the female seminary and I was like, well, what, how do they teach composition there? And, and that was that. And, and so in, in a way, like I said, it was sort of through these moments growing up and this grief that I found myself in composition and rhetoric. I found myself interested in composition pedagogy and teaching and I really felt the need to connect with my dad and with my heritage. Um, and so I turned my research. I don't I, I don't know if this is good for an academic, but I think a lot of us do. my research was my therapy to like work through these issues and and so yeah, I started doing some recovery work and I loved old things so I was like digging around in the archives and um my book started out as my, um, in a way, my master's thesis. And then it was my dissertation. And then I left and got a job. And I was told you have to have a book to get tenure. And I was like, oh, I really like working on my dissertation. Let's keep at that again. So so that's what I did. And I, I decided to turn it into a book. And it was a lot of, you know, blood, sweat and tears and Two pregnancies and two children later and then I had a book come out in December. So it it was definitely it's I, I always joke, but it's it's all connected. Like I can't separate that moment I think of my parents getting divorced when I was four from you know having a doctorate and being at Miami University teaching rhetorical theory now here. So I you know, I think we joke. It's turtles all the way down. For me, it's
1: it's uh it's just all connected. That is such a beautiful story. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Yeah, and so this book, I mean, you've, you've mentioned that it really evolved out of your dissertation research, and you wrote about that in the book. Um, Could you explain a little bit more about how it evolved from that dissertation and what your hopes were for turning it into a book?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, there was definitely that pragmatic, like I started at Miami, was on the tenure track, and they're like, you need a book or equivalent. And at this point, my my son was a newborn. And I was like, well, I'm equivalents not going to happen because I, I'm not going to start all this new research because my research is in archival work and archival work is slow. And it involves travel and it involves a lot of this and I just didn't wasn't able to do that. So I had my dissertation and I knew I I was almost in this love-hate relationship with my dissertation. I loved my research. I loved the content. I loved the stories. But anyone who has done academic writing or even just... Any of your stereotypes about academic writing, it was so formulaic. And I had chapter one was the introduction. Chapter two was the methodology. Chapter three was the analysis and so on and so forth. And it just felt very linear. And I, I, I struggle on my own writing. I think I'm much more inclined to be a narrative writer and write more conversationally. But, um, like a good academic, I was, I was pretty good at adopting an academic voice, but it never felt like mine. So at at this point, like I said, I was, you know, I had my dissertation and I have wonderful friends and colleagues and mentors here and a shout out to Jason Palmieri, who was here at the time. And remember he was, he was mentoring me and he was, I was like, Jason, I'm having so like this really difficult time turning my dissertation into a book. I was like, it, everyone's telling me that it's technically two different books it's no one's going to want to read about methodology they just want to hear about the seminaries but yet i can't separate those two like ethically for my own well-being and also just mentally and intellectually i was like it's so the storytelling is so tied to how i understand this archival research and so tied to how i am connected to this archival research and Without that storytelling, I couldn't recover what was in the archives in a way that was Cherokee, in a way that was indigenous. It felt like colonizing those stories, taking them and saying that they were mine and that I had created this from the archive and all sorts of stuff. So I remember he he was like, Emily, you have to remix it. He's like, "To to turn it into your book, you have to tear it apart. And he goes, you got to think about it as like, you know, if you want to think about it as sampling, like in hip hop culture, like where you have a sample of something and you're remixing it and playing around with it. And he's like, you got it. You got to find your voice. And, and I joke about this, but that's about when the pandemic hit and we went on lockdown and all of a sudden I was gifted this time to just teach online. There was teaching remotely Um I had the privilege my son's school, he went to, he went to, he goes to a small Montessori school and um, they went back in person, but they had, they had outdoor class. They went very 19th century, if you will. And like the kids, I think we had a huge snowstorm. So the kids are like learning math and like snowsuits. But so I, I was gifted this time and this time just to really reconnect. And so I started thinking, this and remembering back on my own stories on how i connected to my research initially Um, and i had remembered in grad school i had the opportunity to go to cherokee north carolina and meet with tom belt who is an elder i'd call him a storyteller he works on the cherokee language um, and he was working with uh, western carolina university there And I met with him as part of a Native American linguistics class. Uh, Again, I never steered far from linguistics. um, And he took us to Katua, which is the spiritual home place of the Cherokee. And he taught us about um, the council house and sort of he wasn't teaching us ceremony but he was bringing us into ceremony through storytelling um, even though the council house isn't there there's still a mound there so he made sure we entered from the east we walked around the top of the mound counterclockwise um, in the cardinal directions and as it it dawned on me and I started doing more reading uh, more Cherokee traditional uh, traditionalists like uh, Crossland Smith and storytellers and it I started really sort of meditating and looking at that medicine wheel, and those cardinal directions as ceremony and thinking about research as ceremony. Sean Wilson has a great book about that, by the way, called research as ceremony. So I was really inspired by his work. Um, and so I was really thinking back on the council house and our walking through this space um, and doing that. And it, it dawned on me that the cardinal directions was actually the organization of my book and how I could make it make sense for me, but also to share that with an audience. And I was like, that's that's the ritual. That's the ceremony that's tying these stories in the archive to what we would call the academic research methodology. And so it, it was this huge watershed moment where I finally felt like I was able to rid myself of that sort of imposter dissertation linear writing style there's nothing wrong with that but it just wasn't me and it wasn't fitting these stories and I found my voice I found myself thinking about all our relations not just material relations with like objects and things but also like our spiritual relations at this time this sounds so I use the phrase hippy dippy and it just felt, it didn't feel like it, but I was having dreams about, um, like I share one of these in the book. Uh, I had this dream that, you know, it was like typical, like school anxiety. Um, I was taking a test and I was doing really well. And then all of a sudden I was doing really bad. It was like, a, it was it was um, a standardized test, which I, I still have fears about, even though I will never, ever take a standardized test. Like apparently the GRE just traumatized me. Um, so it was in my dream. And in my dream, I turned around and there was a woman, um, an indigenous woman. I, I I call her an auntie. She was sitting there and she had this amazing flowing black hair that flowed into this ribbon skirt and she just filled the room. And I went to her for help in my dream. And she said, Emily, okay, you're doing this all wrong. Do it your way. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, this seems ridiculous. But I'm like that, that's, that's part of my research. That's helping me understand. I have to do this in a Cherokee way. If I don't, if I don't research, if I don't write, in a Cherokee way, I am not honoring. I'm not being responsible to the ancestors in the archive and these materials and these stories that that were there. So I was like, you know what, I'm I'm gonna write this for Cherokee. I'm gonna write this for everyone. Um, it's academic in nature, but I really hope that it's accessible to to anyone interested in cherokee history and storytelling and just ways to think about archival work that isn't drawn from this sort of a eurocentric tradition of of being in the archive and and discovery and, and and all that sort of stuff so so yeah it's like i said i the whole like backstory of of the book is I was sad about my dad and I had dreams about being Cherokee, so I wrote a book um on my research. And, and I was like, oh no, that's that's me. That's me. That's this this I feel like I'm finally being true to myself. Um yeah,
1: amazing. It is yeah. yeah, it's really authentic. Absolutely. Thanks. Um and you've you've mentioned um yeah. this methodology of the medicine wheel, and that becomes the structure for the book. Yep. Um <laughs> in there's, there's four sections overall. So section one starts at the east, as you mentioned, entering. Um, And so what does this mean in a methodological methodological sense? In what did this stage of your research, uncover about what mainstream Eurocentric archives are doing to the history of teaching and rhetorical curriculum at the Cherokee National Seminaries, specifically? Yeah,
0: So it was one of those things I I had done the archival research before I thought of this methodology and like anybody who gets drawn into the archives, there's a lot of writings on the allure of the archives. And I think, you know, anyone who likes old things, like you, you go into these, you know, buildings where there's just these gray boxes and you open up a gray box and there could be anything from old pictures, letters. I, I, was volunteering at a um, Tippecanoe Historical County Association in Lafayette, Indiana um, at this time. And I got to process some of the archives there as a volunteer. And to kind of give you an idea of that, that feeling of going into the archive, I remember I was looking at some civil, there were civil war letters written back and forth, and they were pretty mundane, um, just about everyday life. I think somebody was writing to his brother and there wasn't a lot of details there. We were trying to assess the value. And in one of them as I'm reading it, um, the, the guy starts talking about the death of his daughter and that his daughter had died. So, you know, I'm reading this, I'm just drawn to this story and like totally just there. And I'm like, looking at the paper, I'm like, are these, are these tear stains on this paper? Was he, was he crying? So I just started like putting this like story on top of this this, you know, man writing about the death of his daughter. And I was like, oh, that emotional feeling and what he must have been going through, all this. So I, I was clearly like hook line sinker, allure of the archives. I'm there. Um and so I, you know, I kind of had this experience. And then it was, it started bothering me thinking about my own actions and how I was really placing this story in this context onto this material and how this, you know, this letter and how archives tend to be, we we share like the provenance of archives, like where they came from, um how they were collected with the dates of, um you know, sort of that origin story of the archives, but here they are in, you know, very pristine gray archival boxes tucked away, organized in shelves with finding aids and all this stuff. And it was, it felt so removed from community. And from the actual people, but removed in a way where I felt like I could kind of create the puzzle that was there and then solve it myself. And so as I'm doing more research, you know, like I said, I'm in grad school and I'm learning about decolonial work. And I, I read um, Decolonizing Methodologies by Linda T.Y. Smith, which is a phenomenal book for anyone interested in decolonial research methodologies and I think that one of the first lines in her book is like, for indigenous people, research is a dirty word. And I was like, oh, dang, like that's some truth. That's some hard truth right there. And and so I started thinking, I was like, oh, no, I'm kind of doing the dirty work in the archives. I'm wanting to give stories and to make them my own in this. So I, at that point, I I was looking in the archives at the Cherokee Female Seminary and um, started looking at the history and there wasn't much in there. Um, and I share in my book, one of the reasons why there's, you know, not a lot of materials in there, it was a very scant archive, was that the seminary completely burned down. Um, everything material that would have been collected in an archive like i was expecting oh i'll see student work and like you know old textbooks that has gone um the only thing that was saved this is a great story was Anne florence wilson who was a principal at the time when it burned down like all the, she got all the girls out and everything made sure everyone's safe and like a really good principal and admin she runs back into the building grabs the grade book because you gotta have the grade book, right that's that's really important. She brought it out. So that's the only like actual material that exists from there. And um, the archivist at Northeastern state university of Oklahoma and Tahlequah, she like kind of shared, they have some souvenir catalogs that were reprinted. They're not original, but it was a lot for like anniversaries of the seminaries. Um, They have the original blueprints from both of the seminaries. And so it was like, I was trying to find ways to weave these stories together. And it wasn't until I set myself aside i was like okay i am not the discoverer or explorer in the archive i need to make relationships with the archive i need to work with the archive not about the archive not for the archive i need to work with and so i started turning to indigenous ontologies of all our relations and looking at how just that the, the human isn't the center of the universe. The, the the human is just in relation with everything else. And that's where I got the title actually was the stories of our living ephemera is that stories are living. They take on their own life. Even if you're a storyteller, you're not the expert of that story. Um, Cherokee call themselves liars. That's the word for storytelling. They, they lie, they embellish um, and others will learn from that story what they're going to learn. And so I was like, okay, that's I need to turn to Cherokee stories as that theory that guides me and puts me back in relationship with the archive instead of trying to create a narrative that satisfied some sort of academic drive that I needed to discover and share that nobody else had talked about and and so yeah when I started thinking about entering from the East when you enter in ceremony and for Cherokee when we enter into through the East we're making relations. Do that um I was explaining to my grad students as you walk into the council house, you walk through the east, and as you start walking counterclockwise, you walk. Um, there was a section for each of the seven clans of the of the Cherokee um in the council house, and you walk through those those sections and around till you get to where your clan is, and you're through that process, you continually make relations with that. And I was like, Okay, yeah, we're making relations with the archives. I'm not I'm not gonna Christopher Columbus this was basically what I told myself. I'm like, oh my God, do not Christopher Columbus this, Emily. Really just make relationships with it. So so yeah, that's like I said, that was that moment where I was like, okay, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling that this is ethical, this is responsible, and this feels the most Cherokee that I could think and, and be in this
1: moment. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I loved your discussion of like being in relation with the archive as as a kind of a new approach um and so then in the next section of the book the um the north yeah um uh, this section really centers storytelling and listening and relationality and Is there anything else that you want to add about what this this perspective of storytelling and listening um, meant for your research and your writing and how the storytelling methodology really changed your orientation to things? Yeah,
0: I think the big part of it was just acknowledging traditional stories as theory that it was just as valid as i like to joke with my grad students reading like the french like derrida and foucault and Deleuze and Guattari, like you know in a way they, they tell stories too and i was like well why wouldn't stories about wolf wearing shoes you know it, which is a story i tell in the book why why couldn't that be my theoretical approach to to research why do I consider that or why does you know the university or academics consider that folklore and not theoretical work and knowledge making so part of me like this was my this was my drive was to show just how valid those storytellings can be so when I was thinking about in the north it was really, preparing yourself to listen and be open to those stories. And so I did a lot of research. I listened to storytellers. Um, I read books about Cherokee storytelling. I tried to attend in as many events as possible. I'm still doing that. Like Just yesterday, I went to um, the Miami Center here on campus, had their winter stories, their winter storytelling. It's stories they can only tell at winter. Um, But... I sat and I got to listen to the beautiful Miami language and these stories and and they also reiterated just that as a storyteller you weren't the expert but it was truly that act of listening and how stories make meaning it didn't like the content obviously is important and there's certain beats that will always be told in stories like and you can think about this you know like when you're telling a story to friends you know, you'll be like, oh, that one time, you know, remember New Year's Eve where we got kicked out of the wild turkey, you know, like, you start telling the story. So, like, I, I'll tell a story. This happened to my friends and I in college. It's a long story. Um, but there's always, like, certain moments where we have to, but you embellish the, the, the little bits in between, right? And so the way that, like, storytelling was working as theory was that my experiences, my knowledge was going to help me understand these stories in, in in my way. That that story, like the story of Wolf wearing shoes is going to mean something different for everyone, but that that's what the story wanted me to know. Like the story is the living expert in this. And I, I use this quote um, from some of the Cherokee storytellers, like if you're gonna learn, you're gonna learn. And if you're not gonna learn, that knowledge wasn't meant for you. Um and that's how I was kind of approaching the storytelling. I was like, you know, I this is what I need to learn. And so, yeah, it was just about trying to explain that shift from thinking about the content of stories from like plot and you know, what was happening and stuff to actually how they made knowledge. And I always kind of frame it too is like we know when we enter that storytelling frame, like if I were to sit here, you know, for all the listeners, I would go, you know, once upon a time, there was a little girl who was wandering in the woods, right? And all of a sudden, like everyone, and this is going to happen to everyone. We all like, kind of sit back and like your body just like, and you you attune your listening just in a very different way, right? You're like, oh, it's time for story. We're going to sit back and listen. And that's what I was really hoping to get across here. This was my, you know, we might not always say once upon a time, but Stories operate that way. We just listen to them differently um, when we think about them as having this sort of theoretical knowledge making power to it. So, yeah, when I was writing in the North, that's really what that section is about is just like, you know, yeah, Wolf finds some shoes, and they're not actually shoes, and it's a pretty funny story. But what are you actually learning through that story? Um, spoiler: alert, I learned that I was doing research wrong. It's like Wolf, and I was wearing the wrong shoes, and I had to admit that. And you know, my, you know, there was probably some ancestors, you know, laughing at me as I'm trying to do this work and um, not doing it in a very Cherokee way to start out. So, yeah, when I when I heard that story, it wasn't until like years later i was like oh that's what wolf is teaching me like don't don't be you know egotistical like wolf and keep wearing the wrong shoes and not admit that you're doing things in a wrong way so
1: yeah yeah no it's such a terrific like orientation to take two things to research um and so then in the next section the west you Lay out a lot of the knowledge that you found by listening to stories and by approaching the archive in a new way. I was especially fascinated by everything you shared about students use of writing and print publications at the Cherokee National Seminaries. Uh, So I would love if you could talk a little bit about how student newspapers were a tool for building community and preserving culture and how all of that work gives us a clearer picture of the purpose of the seminaries and their approach to education and self determination.
0: Yeah, so this was again this was my having to look outside the archive when I when I was doing this and one of the things that I found really interesting because like a good digital scholar I just decided to google. I was like, well what happens if I google Cherokee Female Seminary, you know, and I add the word like archive to the end of it like and so I was getting a lot of results and finding the Cherokee Rosebuds, which is the student newspaper. And copies that still exist, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa! These are from like the 1850s, and, and you know they're still around. They're not in the archives. There's like copies of them at Northeastern State, um, you know, so they're they're there. But I found that Yale has like actual copies of the the newspaper, and they've digitized it. Thank you, Yale, for doing that. Um, like that's a Beneki rare book. So I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Um, for any archivists out there just just google you're gonna there's wonderful people who have archived things and put it online um and so i was as i was reading them and i had read sort of some scholarship around the newspapers to try to learn a little bit more about them as well and a lot of it was like oh it's clear that these you know women were writing about you know trying, I don't want to say like trying to be white, but it was very much from this assimilation point of view. Like, well, they're writing in English and they're writing about, you know, Western ideals of true womanhood and just feelings. And it's just this kind of schoolgirl writing and all sorts of stuff. And I was like, okay, what I know from Cherokee, like the seminaries are not a point of shame for Cherokee people. Like our cherokee heritage center like museum is where the female seminary was like we still have the columns there that's where we've centered our place of history that's where our genealogy research is held i'm like okay like we're not clearly ashamed of this it's like oh well the seminaries were there to turn us into white people um basically your white ways of of being and and all sorts of stuff so so it was like trying to reconcile this i was like okay How do I reconcile this? I'm like, well, I'm just going to listen to the ancestors here. Like, what are they actually saying? So this is where I got to be that good rhetorician and think about, okay, what meaning are they trying to make in these, you know, essays about being, you know, the, the female influence? I'm like, well, this sounds like a very like sort of feminist take on like, look at these strong female women. Here, you know, or female women, that's redundant, but look really at these strong women and what they have done, and you know what this says about um the role of women in society and how even men will bow and to 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 these women and and listen. I think one of the lines was like, even George Washington listened to his mother. And I was like, That's right, George Washington did listen to his mother. Um, so, so like okay, I'm like, there's clearly some sort of what we would call like double consciousness happening here, where they're writing to an audience that would get these references, but they're trying to communicate something else. So that, and that's when I started, that's when I turned to the stories. And Cherokee is a matrilineal society. So women had a lot of power and and it was in balance with what men would do. So there was roles to take, but it, one wasn't subservient to the other, but, things could happen. Like if a woman wanted to divorce her husband, she would just set all his stuff outside and just be like, you're done. And that was divorce. Like she, she had the, she had the ultimate decision and then she could take on another husband and stuff, you know? So it's just like one of the things. So it was, so as I'm reading these newspapers, um, I start reading, I guess for the cliche line, I'm reading between the lines and I'm like, okay, what is what they're saying? How does that connect with the stories that I know that I know that they knew from being Cherokee, from being there, from, you know, being around traditionalists, even if they weren't considered, you know, what we would identify as like the ideal traditionalist who is wearing, you know, native clothing. I mean, they were, they were wearing Gibson you know, Gibson girl style, hairstyles, a big poofy, you know, very 18th century uh, or 19th century outfits and stuff, you know. So, but I was like, no, there's something there. They're talking about being Cherokee. They're talking about stomp dances. And it wasn't until I was reading actually some of the editorial marks on the newspaper uh, that they had there. And there was like at this point, too, I had found some uh, newspapers from the male seminary too, and kind of the same style of writing. It was like, you know, we're good men in good society, but we're also Cherokee here. Like, you know, and so, but there was this like cheeky back and forth in the two newspapers about what they're doing. And like, well, the men haven't written theirs yet. So we got another publication out before them. And in one of the lines, they were like, oh, I really hope all of our readers through this newspaper exchange understand how we are Cherokee girls. And, you know, we're here and we're, you know, we're doing all this stuff. And I was like, what do they mean newspaper exchange? So I started looking at it and these seminaries in the 19th century, like sent out their newspapers to other seminaries to stay in contact with them. And I was like, all of a sudden it dawned on me. that I was like, they're writing for a Cherokee audience, but they're white, writing for a, a white audience too, and they're trying to share their culture in a way that is accessible, but also acceptable. So accessible that others can read it, but also acceptable to a white society. Like to, and I explain this: I the Cherokee, along with other tribes in Oklahoma, have always been the five civilized tribes, which is a really problematic phrase, but phrase. Um, looking back now, but at the time they were like, no, 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 look, we're civilized. We can take care of ourselves. This is our self-determination. Like we do not need to be considered wards of the state, which is what the Supreme Court had decided. Um, all sorts of stuff. They're saying, you know, we are sovereign. We can take care of ourselves. We have institutes of higher education. They are matching and rivaling your institution of higher education. We can adopt these models and navigate them and make them Cherokee for the Cherokee people. And I was like, that's the powerful story that is here. That is what these women were doing. They had to, you know, sort of appease this wider, wider, audience but also maintain the ways that they are Cherokee and then the important thing too in these newspapers is that half of it was also published in Cherokee in the Cherokee language in the syllabary so it in some of those through my research when I'm finding out like I said I took Cherokee in college and I just unfortunately haven't been around people to speak it enough and it's my lifelong goal to teach it to my children and have them learn with me and everything but um the stories in the newspaper that are written in Cherokee aren't just translations of what's written in English, that they're different. And I'm like, okay. So I was like, okay, why are they doing this? If they're not teaching Cherokee at the seminary, well, Cherokee was their way of life. That's what they were learning at home. And that's what they were learning in their community is how to be Cherokee and the stories and the culture of being Cherokee um, and everything there. So, um, And then it was also at this time just doing some cross research and I realized the Cherokee Phoenix had gone out of publication. And so the seminaries sort of took that role in the community of, you know what, the the Cherokee Phoenix um, isn't publishing um, because of upheaval through the Civil War, all sorts of things that was going on. This is all so entwined into national history too. Um, They took up that role of providing stories and news and everything for the communities there in Northeastern Oklahoma and for the communities abroad in other states as well. So yeah, like those newspapers were just, they're phenomenal. I love reading, and I still like, I think my work will always be somewhat tied to those newspapers because there's like only five copies in existence. They didn't actually publish for too long, but they are so rich. And they are so fun to read. It's they're really great.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And I think like you modeled a really, really nuanced um, and um, I guess relational and re- respectful way to, to read and listen to those newspapers that I thought was um, a really exciting approach for looking at, at the newspapers of other communities as well. Thanks. Um Yeah. Yeah,
0: You really got to like, like we kind of joke, like this is where I got to be like the rhetorician and just think about topic, purpose, audience, you know, like the rhetorical triangle. And I was like, well, what is their purpose for this? You know, why publish a newspaper um, with essays they had clearly written in class? You know, why are they doing that? And it's like, yeah, they're they're sharing what it means to be Cherokee, what it means to navigate a society that wants to assimilate them into white culture with still maintaining Cherokee ways of life. Um, How do you weave that together? And so, yeah, they were doing incredibly rhetorical work. Um, And in a, you know, self-deprecating way as they're writing, like, oh, we're just Cherokee girls here out in Indian territory, you know, pay us no heed. And it's like, no, they're It's still the cheeky, like, oh, I'm just a storyteller. I'm just, you know, lying and embellishing when there's really some truth there. So, yeah, it was looking at them like, okay, these are these are my ancestors and these are my these are my storytellers in the archive that I really need to listen to what
1: they're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so then the final section of this book, The South, presents us with where this whole methodology leaves us. And I loved your description of approaching the archive as an accomplice could you share some of the steps that you put forward in that section for anyone to follow as they approach archival research as an accomplice
0: yes so i will say i have to give a shout out to my colleagues and friends and this is from techcom technical communication which is a part of rhetoric and composition but also a separate field and so we do a lot of interdisciplinary work and and um, they had written about being an accomplice, um, doing social justice work in in technical communication, and as I so I was reading that because part of my research is in technical communication, and I was I was sort of taken aback. I was like, "Well, accomplice? Do they mean like you know an a- accomplice? Like, is it like accomplice to murder? Like, what you know what what is what does being an accomplice really mean?" And so I was thinking about the difference because we hear a lot when you do social justice work, um. To be an ally, and a lot of people, you know, will wear, you know, badges or put up stickers like "I'm an ally." Like, you know, you can talk to me and all sorts of stuff. And um, I, you know, they talk about this, but I, I I was thinking about well, an ally is someone who comes there in times of need, right? And we think about this in terms of like allies, you know, on in like a military sense too. Like, when when do you have allies? Will they come to your aid? Um. And that was this sort of moment if we're if we're trying to decolonize our work in the archives, if we're trying to um, really listen to the archives and sort of take an indigenous approach, well, an ally only coming there in times of need still had that sort of white saviorish moment where you're like, oh, I'm here, I'll, I'll be here, I'll support you, but I'm I'm saving you in your time of need, right? Like, And so I, you know, as they were talking about being an accomplice and they um, define accomplice as somebody who is consistently there and actively engaged and that you're there in times of need, but you're also there in times of celebration. You're, you are there, you are actively lending your support and the important phrase and as little and as pithy as a word as it sounds the word with. I think is so important in these moments. You're not just there. You are working with. You are making knowledge with. You are learning with these people. You're not learning about. You're not there to support and lend your strength. You're there to be with them consistently and actively. And I wanted to take that into archival research because I think archives get to go back to that, it's not even a metaphor, the literal box of an archive, right? It's really easy to support that archive when you're there at, you know, the, the archives, wherever you're working or library, university, and you know, that box comes out and you're with that box at the time. And then you're, you know, you just like, Oh, if I'm, I'm an ally in here, I'm looking at this and then you put it away and it's gone. Right. Well, being an accomplice means to be consistently, reframing the way that you are working with the archive and with the living stories that are there. Um, so like I said, I think it's so easy for those of us to get pulled into the, um, the sort of allure of the archive, the ephemera, the things left behind. I mean, we're, you're touching and interacting with objects that are old and you feel that immediate connection and like I said, I still have to check myself constantly and be like, okay, am I being an accomplice here? Am I, am I consistently being responsible? Am I consistently, you know, reciprocating the knowledge that I'm learning with these archives to others in a way that is honoring the ancestors here, honoring the stories that are here and, and doing that. And it's, it's a such an active frame of having to think that, because like I said, it's so easy to get swept away and be like, well, clearly this is what this, you know, the, what's here in the archive. And I have discovered this and I am going to share it with the world because nobody else is here in this archive with me. Well, no, you're not alone. You're not, you're an accomplice there. Um, those archives are the living stories of ancestors, of those who have passed, of those who have um being remembered through, through that material that's, that's left there. So yeah, I think that's what I was really hoping. Um, and again, thinking about like the purpose of a book, I, I felt like I needed to leave people with, with something active to do. And like, you know, one of the feedbacks I always get with, with, you know, I don't know what I always get, I, I used to get like, you know, I tell people like, well, have you thought about like, Taking sort of an indigenous post to research, and a lot of it, people will be like, "Well, the, I I don't do indigenous studies. That's that's like your thing, you know." And it's like, and I understand that, like, because there there is a lot of fear. You don't want to appropriate knowledge. Um, you don't want to take what's not yours. But but by making that move, like, well, that that's your work, you know, that still marginalizes that work and pushes it again to, to the outsides of academia. So I was really trying to end this book with an invitation that, you know, if you do this in a good way, in a balanced way, and Cherokee word for it is de-yukta. If you do this in a balanced way in, you know, we would say, Oh, in that, in that good way there, I um, I can, channel a little bit of Sterling Harjo and like reservation dogs, which everyone should watch. Um, If you do that in that good way there, um, it really is in a good way. You have to approach that. um, That's not appropriation. That is learning with indigenous people who have been here, whose lands we all are on um, and who often get overlooked and erased in, in um, academia and universities and, and in history in general, um so yeah, that was that was my hoping that was that was my invitation that you don't have to push this work to the side that you can you can also learn with indigenous worldviews. It, it's work. Um and it's a lot of listening. And to anyone who is interested in that, my I think my biggest advice is just talk to the community members, talk to tribal members. Um you'll find if they don't want to share something with you, they won't. Um, and that's okay. But if if there's something to be shared and they're okay with it. They, they are open. Those communities want to continue their work because um, just like I, I learned from the Miami yesterday, those stories are living and it's our responsibility to keep telling those stories and to hear those stories. So those stories take on and continue their lives for generations forward. So, so yeah, that's how I wanted to add. I was like, you too can also being an accomplice in the archive <laughs> so and that and hopefully hopefully that's helpful I
1: folk. thought, it, yeah I thought it was a really helpful um kind of way forward for readers to leave leave things at the end um I really appreciated it thanks uh, I know I've taken a lot of your time but before we wrap up I would love um to hear where all of the work on this book has brought you. I, I mean no pressure, but are there any new projects that you're working on that came out of this or new things you're working on now that you finally have the time and are entirely different from this book? Yeah. So
0: um I, you know, I was thinking about this question. Like I as as again, as an associate professor now, I think I, I fell into that typical trap. I'm new now doing administrative work here at Miami. I'm the director of professional writing. And so there's part of me that's like, oh my gosh, I don't have time for research and whatnot, but I, I started thinking, you know, well, if I didn't have like this actual like labor that I'm doing here, what would I be doing? I don't think I, I don't think I could ever not do archival work in working with the Cherokee nation and hearing these stories. Like, like I said, I I knew about the seminaries just from growing up in museums and all sorts of stuff. But like, I was, um, the Chieftain Museum, uh, Major Ridge's House Museum in Rome, Georgia, the, uh, museum director reached out to me and he was like, oh, there's this other seminary. We'd love if you could give a talk on this. And I was like, wait, there, there, there's more Cherokee seminaries. Like, and I, and I and I didn't do that. Like there's part. So I, I think where my work is going is to still do sort of this recovery history, um, and look at the, um, various like points of education and um just the connection between writing and language and all sorts of stuff that the Cherokee have always kind of done. Um with uh I think he, he mentioned the the Fayetteville seminary in Arkansas. And I was like, wait, I have relatives that lived in Arkansas before they moved to Indian Terran, Oklahoma. And so again, it's like that family moment. Like it's I oh it might sound so self-serving, so but I'm like going back to my grandma, I'm like, well, I gotta, I gotta learn my genealogy. Like, let's, let's tie it to research. So yeah, I think just digging through, through archives and learning Cherokee stories and, and storytelling and recovery work. And, um, I'm really drawn to 19th century. I, 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 (laughs) I think I blame when I was growing up, I read a lot of like boarding school books. Like, um, I also, loved Anna Green Gables and Emily of New Moon, Lucy Maud Montgomery. I'm total, total fan. Uh and I've always read, you know, her books have always just been my favorite. So I think like I have like this like draw to like the 19th century and and everything. And I'm like, oh I gotta, you know, but it's it's such a complex time in history, in American history. Um and I think that's what I'm I'm actually drawn to is how these, you know, everyday women uh, navigated this world that was in such upheaval, um and so much happening on. And I, anymore, now I'm seeing such a connection to today's history. Not that history repeats itself, but it sure has echoes and and ripples that are felt. And I think we're we're also in that sort of moment. So I I think I'm looking to Cherokee women and the way Cherokee women write in what they're doing, and that's where my work's going to go. And I think my work just always might stay in that, that area. Cause like I said, it's self-serving, but it makes me feel whole. And it, it helps me as I live in Ohio. I had a, an, a Miami friend here tell me, welcome to the indigenous donut hole of the United States. Ohio has no federally recognized tribes um, here. Uh, there's the Miami center. And obviously there's a lot of indigenous culture, but um, there's, I need that connection back to my community. And if I can do that in my research and my work and give back to the Cherokee nation, um, in the ways that they have helped me and sustained me through stories, that's, that's what I want to do moving forward. So it's not like a specific thing, but look for more, look for more stories and Cherokee women and 19th century stuff coming from me in the future. And, um, Yeah, I hope hope to do another book. I really had a good time writing this book. Um, Once I got past that dissertation thing, that kind of hung over my head. I was like, okay, no, I I do enjoy writing. I love sharing these stories and I I help others get as much of enjoyment um, out of it. I tried to, if anyone reads the book, I tried to quote as much of the Cherokee female students that were there at the time, like just the way they're telling stories, of uh, their experiences there, and their their humor that's just interwoven through all this, like yeah i want I want to keep their stories going, and I want others to hear more about them because they're phenomenal women and teachers that are still just making a huge impact
1: today so fantastic. well, thank you so, so much. Well, thank um, you, yeah um such a great conversation about this book once again um today i've been speaking with emily leg author of stories of our living ephemera storytelling methodologies in the archives of the cherokee national seminaries 1846 to 1907 my name is jen hoyer and you're listening to new books network